You're listening to Sex Gets Real with Dawn Sarah. That's me. This is a place where we explore sex, bodies, and relationships from a place of curiosity and inclusion, tying the personal to the cultural, where you're just as likely to hear tender questions about shame and the complexities of love as you are to hear experts challenging the dominant stories around pleasure, body politics, and liberation. This is about the big and the small, about sex and everything surrounding it we don't usually name. The funny, the awkward, the imperfect happen here in service to joy, connection, healing, and creating healthier relationships with ourselves and each other. So welcome to Sex Gets Real. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Hey you, we are here with a very exciting episode featuring my chat with the incredible artist and activist Alok. Before I get to my chat with Alok, I wanted to remind you that there is a New Year's giveaway. If you want to enter to win Allison Moon's Girl Sex 101 and Bad Dyke, Salacious Stories from a Queer Life, plus a handwritten note from me, you can head to sexgetsreal.com slash NY 2019 for New Year's 2019. The drawing is through January 15th, 2019. And uh, you can throw your name in the hat if you want to see if maybe you're one of the randomly selected winners. The person who wins will get a copy of both of those books, a note from me, and hopefully a nice sexy start to their new year. So you can enter to win at sexgetsreal.com slash NY2019 for our new year's giveaway. I'd love to see you over there. Plus that gets you on the Sex Gets Real newsletter. So that just in case something ever happens, I have a way to contact you plus let you know about all kinds of fun stuff I've got planned for 2019. I also wanted to mention that I would love to see you in my coaching practice. I do one-on-one work and couples work around intimacy, desire, connection, kink, bodies, and all of the things that keep us connected and communicating. So if you could use a little help getting unstuck, you want to dive deeper, explore things in new ways, or just really strengthen and reprioritize that connection with self or other, head to dawnsarah.com to check out my coaching options. I would love to be able to support you, to witness you, to honor you, to validate you, and to help you feel like you've got the support you need. This episode with Alok is really special to me. Anytime I get to chat with Alok, I feel cracked open. I feel raw. I feel gratitude. There's something that uh, really intimidates me about speaking with Alok because as you'll hear, the way that Alok moves through the world is um, simultaneously heartbreaking for all of the violence that they experience and also um, tremendously generous in the ways that they share themselves through their art and the ways that they think and talk about 
the gender binary and body hair and the ways that the gay movement has left behind the most marginalized and the way the body positivity movement is failing so many. We also talk about the power of friendship and why so much of what we are looking for answers around starts with friendship. We also talk about art and pleasure and so many other things. And I'm really excited to share this with you. I should just note, we recorded this several weeks after the Trump administration released that memo saying that they were going to try and eliminate the word transgender from all of the health departments and science departments. So we recorded this sometime in November, and um, it's just now airing. I had a backlog of questions and things to get through for the end of the year. So you'll hear us at one point in the episode mention the memo, and that is the Trump administration's memo around eliminating transgender. I hope that you savor this. I hope that you feel it in your bones. I hope that you listen to it multiple times. I know that I have and I'm still walking away with so many things I really need to grapple with and sit with and God, just such good stuff. I also want to mention that Patreon supporters, your bonus this week is a listener question that says, I would rather masturbate and fantasize than engage intimately with my wife. Is that okay? Let's roll around and what that means and all of the different things that might be at play. So if you go to patreon.com slash SGR podcast, new URL, SGR podcast for Sex Gets Real, you can either support the show at any dollar amount that you'd like, or if you already do at $3 a month and above, you get exclusive, nowhere else to be found content every single week. So make sure you pop over there and hear the bonus. I got some wonderful emails from several supporters that did the New Year's ritual with me last week. And oh, your emails touched me so deeply. If you haven't had a chance to do that New Year's ritual, please do head over. There's some really yummy stuff that I, I think you'll enjoy. So Alok is a gender non-conforming writer, performing, and fashionista. And here is our conversation. Welcome to Sex Gets Real, Alok. I am so excited to have you here with me this week, and I know the listeners are too. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Your talk at Explore More Summit last year was the most popular talk of them all by a landslide. I got so much feedback from people about how in love with you they were and had several requests for replays. So I know lots of people tuning in also attended the summit and will be ridiculously excited. Yeah, this is something I've been looking forward to for several weeks. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And the reason that I I reached out, I've been wanting to have you on the show for forever. Um, And then I got this listener question that I thought, maybe this is a good place for us to start. And um, so I would love if I could read the listener email to you, and then maybe we could roll around a little bit in like femininity and body hair and shame and all the stuff that comes with that. Sure. Okay. So... SC wrote in and it says, Dearest Dawn, I want to emphasize how incredibly much your podcast has truly changed my life. 
and enhanced my liberation in the world of kink and sex. I listen nearly every day during my commute to and from work. Your words truly are comforting and put my heart at ease. I have some current struggles that I'm really dealing with, and if you have any resources or information, please send it my way. So then SC listed a number of things around an abusive relationship they're in and being a single mom, but the thing that really stood out to me was this part. I have HSV, genital herpes, Kurtzuism, which causes excessive hair growth all over my body, my butt, my arms, my face, my legs, and I have PCOS. These ailments have debilitated me and are destroying my self-confidence. I can barely walk into a room without wanting to cry, especially seeing other couples, families, or women who probably aren't suffering from anything remotely close to these things. I'm in so much pain. It is truly horrible to be in this body and feel like I cannot use it or channel it because of shame and embarrassment. I love that your episodes have really explored and expanded on body shaming and fat shaming, but this is a whole other spectrum of feeling ashamed. I feel so hopeless and truly feel like I will never find anyone who will truly accept me for my body and being a single mom. So Alok, you've written beautifully and painfully and with such rawness and vulnerability over the years around one, your experience of the violence of the gender binary and being someone who exists outside that binary, but also your relationship with body hair and the stories that we carry about that. And so I'm wondering, like, as you hear SC's email, um, what kind of comes up for you or what, what would you like to share? Well, <clears throat> there's so much to say. I think the first thing that feels really important to say is that's so real. Like it's a particular kind of pain that I feel like even in our efforts around body positivity that we have not really thought through the question of body hair really seriously. What I notice in dialogues around body hair is there are appropriate regions of the body that are being reclaimed for body hair. Like, oh, okay, don't shave your legs. And that's a feminist act. But what happens when the hair is on your face? Or what happens when the hair is in places that it's not supposed to be? And I, I think that for me, it's been really sad that we've not been able to really have these kinds of conversations. I'm always interested in the parts of positivity that we bracket away and we say, this is too much for now. <laughs> and I think that's one of them. And so I really appreciate being able to talk about this because uh, I think that it's really absent and then I think after that kind of validation, what feels really important to say is I have struggled with my body hair since I can remember. When I was really young, I used to pluck out my like arm hair and leg hair and shave all the time. I later found out there's like a medical condition called trichotillomania, I think is it, where you're removing your body hair like that. But I don't really need that diagnosis or framework to understand what was going on. I know what was going on. I felt like I was treated less than human and animalized because of my body hair. And I felt like if I removed it, then I would be more palatable, desirable at that level, but then also even me more regarded as a human being, which is like really sad when I think about it now. And I struggled for a long time 
even before I came into an understanding of my gender identity right now, that even when I thought that I had to be a boy and that was the only thing I was, I still felt like I couldn't have body hair like that because of race. And there's this idea that because I was already brown and then also I was hairy, that meant I was animalized and I was always teased, called a monkey and all these other racial sort of epithets. And so, which is to say, I've struggled with this for a really long time and only in the past few years have I actually found a way to come into harmony with that. And I would actually say the way that I learned to embrace my body hair came through accepting myself as a gender non-conforming person. Um, and what that means to me is I became really politicized around thinking about what do we mark as feminine, what do we mark as masculine, and why are we constantly taught that these two things have to exist in polarities and, and oppositional relationships. And so I would really look at myself in the mirror and I would look at myself having a full beard and lipstick and I'd be like, why do I find this unsightly? And I really spent a lot of time thinking and surrounding myself with other visibly gender non-conforming people and starting to realize like, oh my gosh, the only reason that I am upset about this is because of other people's projections. It's not at all organic. It's other people's anxieties and fears that they're mapping out onto my body that have nothing to do with me. And that recognition was so spiritual for me because I was able to really recognize there is beauty in all the parts of me that people dismiss as wrong or shameful or like not supposed to happen. And I'm not saying that it's like been like a, I was ashamed and now I've learned to love myself kind of like linear narrative. Like it's much more complicated and it ebbs and it flows. But I think that what was really helpful for me is recognizing the ways in which people will constantly do things with their own jealousy and their fear. And oftentimes people will respond to their jealousy and fear by shaming other people. Um, and once I started to recognize that connection, I think that the sting of all of the harassment I experienced on account of being hairy and gender non-conforming became much less because I actually was like, wow, these people are also really struggling and they somehow think that policing my body will give them freedom. That's not actually true. I'm actually free. And so then I started to view my gender nonconformity not as something that was an impediment or an obstacle or holding me back, uh, but rather as an invitation, an opportunity, or an exercise to fundamentally reimagine beauty, to fundamentally reimagine gender, and to also fundamentally reimagine myself. Mm. I, so I'd love to start with this piece around the ways that movements and I'm thinking specifically about like body positivity and then like queer LGBTQIA mm -hmm. movements do that. This is too much right now. So we're going right. to hide it, erase it, pretend it doesn't exist. Right. And often what's getting erased is anything that's quote unquote, like too non-normative or that's too far away from whatever that binary is that needs reinforcing by the dominant mm -hmm. culture. 
it's kind of like the folks who conform the closest to the dominant narrative are the ones that are kind of scrambling for that last bit of of power and then everything else gets kind of pushed to the side and said wait it's not your turn you're too much Mm -hmm. we can't make space for you and that seems to kind of always be the case right i i've been thinking about this a lot because i think Often when we have this conversation, we try to cohere these politics around certain identities. So we'll say things like, in order for gay cis men to get equality and acceptance, they had to leave trans people under the bus. Or in order for cis women to be recognized, they had to erase trans men. But what I actually want to push us to do is to understand this impulse as a self-sabotaging impulse that affects even the people who are trying to get recognition and um, respect. Because what they're doing is they're mistaking conditional acceptance with freedom. They're not the same thing. If the only way that you will be accepted is by your worth being negotiated by conforming to a certain set of parameters or norms, that's not actually what freedom is. And so I look at gay cis men who have had to pretend as if the gay movement is just about love and not also about gender nonconformity and difference. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not saying, Oh, wow. You're just messing over trans people. I'm also like, you're messing over yourself. The reason you're experiencing violence is because the world is treating and perceiving you in a gender binaristic way. And you not fighting the gender binary also is hurting you. And I think that what I've tried to reframe the dialogue is that actually those of us who are cut out as excess the reason that we are so deeply repressed and silenced and invisibilized is because the freedom that we are offering is a freedom that actually impacts everyone, not just us. So I think that there's this thing that we do where we make this about like a small minority of people who are cut out. But what I'm trying to reframe that is to be like, even the majority is not experiencing true freedom. They're just experiencing conditional acceptance. So when it comes to body hair and body positivity, I think what I always say is it's really interesting to me that when white cis women choose not to shave their legs, we'll call this like a feminist act, but when trans and gender nonconforming people like me maintain our body hair, we're just called men. That's a double standard. And I'm like, hey, wouldn't it actually be more prudent if we rejected these really arbitrary gender designations and saw gender nonconforming people like me as exemplars for what femininity could be like even for cis women like i think so many cis women struggle with body hair and there's a vast reservoir of selfies images representation art from trans and gender non-conforming people finding ways to celebrate and affirm our body hair but we're somehow not eligible for that kind of connection on the basis of us not being cis women that feels really silly to me and so i always tell people like this is why I, when I'm fighting for like gender nonconforming visibility and representation, I'm not actually just fighting for gender nonconforming people. I'm fighting for all people to be able to look different, one. And then two, also for our physical appearance to not have any bearing on our worth as human beings. I recently did an interview with my friend Mia Mingus uh, for a publication called Them. Mia wrote a really foundational essay to me about the politics of ugliness in 2011. And seven years later, I wanted to talk to her about how ugliness was operating. And this is what she's sort of trying to get at in her work is, 
in order in order for certain things to become beautiful, other things have to become ugly. That there's always this relationship. So, okay, we say plus size is beautiful, but then we create parameters on what do we mean around plus size. If you're bigger than what we think plus size palatable is, then you're too much. And I think a lot about that dynamic, and I'm like, okay. This I, I'm not interested in fighting for that because at the end of the day, whose norms, whose value systems, and whose economies of desires are we upholding? And what Mia writes and speaks about is that actually rather than the pursuit of beauty, which we can understand is already always a pursuit of incorporation, what if we reorient ourselves towards finding magnificence and that which they call ugly? And that for me has been, I think, foundational to reconciling and accepting who I am, is I don't feel the need necessarily to say, when I am visibly hairy and femme, I am beautiful. Like, why should it have to be beautiful to prove that it's not ugly? It's just, this is what I am. And I've been really trying to sit with that, the, the entirety and the poetry and the power of being able to articulate, this is what I am versus what I am is good. Why can't I just be what I am? That feels really interesting, but also unsettling. Hmm. Because I think so much of what we are given with the world around us, and also just how we're expected to perform gender and relationship and everything else is this like quest to prove that we're, we're goodness, that we're right. enoughness. And if we were to give, uh, I mean, it's deeply like anti-capitalist and, mm -hmm. and all kinds of other yummy things. But if we were to like give up the quest of proving goodness and worthiness and instead just saying, this is what is, and that's, I don't have to justify that at all. That creates a huge shift in the ways that we think and talk about ourselves. Right. But I think that it's where we need to be going because what I would always ask of us is, good on whose terms, yeah. you know? Like, I think validation is really powerful and important. I'm not trying to say that this is who I am comes as a declaration of just self-love. I, I think that's foolish. I mm -hmm. think that we need each other and validation is, is, is wonderful. But what I would ask is, why are we seeking validation from foundationally abusive concepts and structures that are never actually gonna love us for us, but will only love us in so much as they can instrumentalize us? I'm interested in receiving validation from people who actually care about me. And I think that's what I've really tried to practice in my life now is like, I need validation. I experience a lot of harassment. I experience a lot of dysphoria, experience a lot of fear. And I need people in my life to tell me, you're beautiful, I love you, what you're doing is important. But I don't need random strangers to say that to me. I need people who actually know me and care about me. So what I've started to incorporate in my own relationships with my friends is just like, affirmation culture with each other. One of the things that I do that is like really silly, but I love it, is I feel like there's so much harassment and vitriol in the world that I try to do the opposite of that. And I just like compliment people. And my compliments, I think like a lot of time about, like I don't want it to just be something like silly. Or I like silliness. I don't want it to be something vapid. I want it to actually be something that like shows that I'm really thinking about you and what you mean in my life. And that's what validation looks like for me is I can call my friend or I can have my friend over and I can say like, you are such a force. Like I completely love spending time with you. Every part of you makes me feel so wonderful. I know that you struggle and it hurts me that you struggle and I'm always here for you. That's the kind of validation I want. 
And I think that we constantly, I, I do this performance piece sometimes <laughs> called My Love Life, where I run into a mattress on a wall just repeatedly. <laughs> and <laughs> what I'm trying to sort of suggest with that is why why do we keep on running into the wall versus recognizing there's a door inside the wall and we can just open the door and there's one another. So what the funny sort of contradiction of the world is, is we're all running into walls without recognizing that there's a door in between those walls that we could just run into each other in, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that what I, when I really think about like how I survive, because for me, these issues are about survival. I think that we constantly dismiss issues of the body and issues of appearance as like somehow superficial or less than or not real. But for me, like what I look like literally impacts my physical safety in terms of people literally being turned to violence when they see visibly gender conforming people. So I'm not trying to belittle at all what physical violence happens to those of us who are perceived by society to be quote unquote ugly. But what I'm trying to suggest is that like, we need somewhere to put that pain and and having to put that pain in an abusive structure, like it doesn't work. We need to put that pain with people who actually care about us. And then I think the next question for me that comes up from that though is, and I think about this with myself too, and it's something I'm still trying to work out, like I don't have all the answers, is what happens if people aren't ready for what you're giving though? So even saying, take it to your friends presumes that you can get friends. But there are some people who are so disqualified from regimes of beauty that they're often left behind. I'm thinking here about people with disabilities. I'm thinking here about gender nonconforming people, people who are seen as so unsightly. Remember, we exist in a country where there used to be ugly laws that prevented people with physical disabilities from existing in public because they were, quote unquote, unsightly. And we tried to disappear people and criminalize them for being, quote unquote, ugly, right? So there are material histories that inform the disappearance of people who look different. And so many times people are so disappeared that they can't even build intimacy with other people. So I think then also the the question for me is not just about how am I thinking about my own physical appearance, but also how am I creating spaces where I love and support and care for people no matter what they look like? And how do I establish that people know that I'm one of those people? Because we're few and far between who are really trying to work on ourselves to actually be like, your appearance has no bearing on my ability to love and show up for you. And we need to be more vocal about that. And I think that's why for me, it's about always thinking like, how am I, how am I creating spaces, language, vocabulary, um, parties, social settings, intimacies, where people don't have to feel the pressure of beauty because it's a pro- it's a it's a form of pressure. Yes. Yes, I think that pressure of beauty is one that has I think it shows up in a lot of ways that we don't even realize it's showing up. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us wouldn't even know how to relax into a space where someone says it really genuinely does not matter how right. you look the love is still going to be here and the respect and seeing right. you with dignity, you know, like I think a, a lot of people wouldn't even know how to trust that. Totally. But I yeah. think that's where we have to figure it out together. Like yeah. I honestly feel like I feel like a broken record at this point, but I feel like most of the answers to the biggest questions of the world are just friendship. Friendship for me is where we begin to experiment with another world and another way to relate to each other. 
because our families didn't really do that well (laughs) and our romantic relationships didn't really do that well and so friendship for me takes a space of like let's actually figure out how to be just with each other and let's create systems of accountability for when we mess up because we will mess up we've been so indoctrinated into the ideas that the binary is purity that uh, your physical appearance has direct impact on everything we've been so thoroughly inculcated with this like real toxicity of course it's going to come out none of us are outside of it Mm -hmm. we're constantly reproducing it but we need people in the world who can literally just hold our hand and be like hey that's not cool we're trying to do something different and work through that together and I think that for me like I'm, I'm committed to the process I think also like part of central to doing this kind of work is recognizing that it's not going to be linear. It's not going to be like, Oh, I wake up tomorrow. I like, I accept my body here. It's going to be actually surround. It's, it's a life shift. It's not just like a shift of the gaze. It's a shift of who we're spending time with. It's a shift of like where we're putting our energy. Like, I think one of the things that was really helpful for me is I started to realize like, I only need people in my life who are really committed to me. Because I found myself in a place where I was in totally unreciprocal relationships, where I felt like I was giving, 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 but not receiving validation, care, and comfort. And so I actually like really let a lot of people go from my life, shifted the way that I was living, and really tried to focus and deepen relationships with people so I could do this kind of intimate work. And that's been so rewarding for me. Mm. I'm wondering as I as I hear about this intimate work of cultivating and inviting in people who offer that validation, that care and that comfort and kind of really letting the rest go of these are the people who can show up for me in this way. How does pleasure factor into those dynamics and those relationships? Like how is pleasure showing up inside of, inside of friendships? So I think this is something that's really on my mind right now, which is I I think that things get really complicated when we start to talk about sexual pleasure in this conversation. Like when it comes to forms of non-sexual pleasure, it's often totally there. And um, there's so many forms of pleasure that are about like eating together, celebrating, laughing, joy, going out for drinks, like going bowling. I love doing that. Like there's always (laughs) a commitment to pleasure there. But then I think what I'm still trying to hack at and figure out in my life is that it really feels like the discourse around and the practices around the, the, the nexus of like desire, beauty, and sexuality need to be parsed through much more. The ways that we talk about desire as some sort of like biological, organic thing is something that I really am so hurt by because I've experienced firsthand watching how certain bodies are seen as and rendered as desirable over others. And that has everything to do with ideas of race, ideas of class, ideas of ability, where certain bodies are just rendered structurally undesirable. And I've saw that happen in my own life, which is that the only way people have been taught to really express sexual desire it's within the parameters of a binary. Yes. And this is not to say, like, I think when I have this conversation, people often trip up and they think that I'm saying that everyone should be necessarily attracted to all people and that preferences are inherently exclusionary. I'm not saying that. 
What, but what I am saying is that I do believe that de- desire is produced through regimes of power that render certain people, especially black people, people of color, indigenous people, people of size, people with disabilities, gender non-conforming people, as just structurally undesirable. Yes. And I don't know what to do with that. But I don't know. I don't think the onus is on shift your desire. That doesn't feel right. But I think it need. I think the first step is really about naming that to actually be like this is happening. Because I think what feels so painful is that so many times people will tell people like gender nonconforming people or people with picos or like people who are visibly gender nonconforming or have a, have body hair like go out, be confident, like you'll find someone, and that just doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> like because of how how violent and exclusionary economies of desire are. And so people began to feel kind of gaslit because they're like, I'm trying everything, but people don't see it for me. And so I think the first step is really about saying, yes, the marketplace of desire is so deeply exclusionary and violent and racist and gender binarist and femphobic and fatphobic and all of these things. Yes. Like, let's stop trying to pretend that it's not. But I don't know where to go after that. Yeah, that's a question that has been circled around on the podcast several times where we're really grappling with kind of these desirability traits that we are kind of all indoctrinated into, that certain bodies get to be desired and certain bodies don't. And when we kind of come up against that, it can it can feel really unsettling. It can make people super defensive. It feels like it's so inherent to us. Um, and yet pretty much everything that we've used to inform our opinion about who gets to be sexy and desired was given to us by outside forces. Right. The solution isn't to just, okay, I'm just like going to grin and bear it with this person that I don't find sexy to like prove that I'm confronting my desirability politics because that's terrible for the person that you're just kind of like. It's dehumanizing. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And I I think ultimately it's going to come back to we have to have some pretty massive structural shifts. Oh, absolutely. I I think it's, it's both about structure and it is about your own personal development. Like I'll speak from my own perspective here. I grew up in a very small Christian evangelical town in Texas where the only beauty norms that I had was that white people were beautiful and all the rest of us were ugly. And I remember some of my first memories are like a deep sense that I was ugly because I was not white. I remember literally telling my mom, okay, keep washing my hands. Why isn't this brown coming off of me? I remember constantly adoring images of whiteness in the media and thinking maybe one day I'll be pure like that. I remember that being recreated in my own family structures whenever I was born really much lighter skin and then I started to get darker and the ways that people treated me began to shift. I I think so many of my earliest memories of pain are linked to questions of colorism and racism and desirability. But the way that that impacted me was I literally only was taught to desire whiteness and I wouldn't desire my own people, which is so painful. And so I really sat with that pain for years and I was like, what do I do? And then I made it a priority. I was like, I really need to actually learn how to love myself and love my skin and love people like me. And I really started to actually think, process, shift who I was hanging out with, what kind of spaces I was in, 
what kind of media I was consuming, what kind of movies I was watching, what priorities I had, and my desire shifted. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I don't, I don't think that think like we constantly want to do this thing. I mean, especially it's important to talk about this in, in light of the anti-trans memo that was just put out by the Trump Ugh. administration. Yeah. We constantly want to do this thing where we make really complex systems fixed and immutable because yeah. that's the easy thing. So we say gender is fixed and immutable. Not true. We say sex is fixed and immutable. Not true. And then we're also doing this thing where we say sexuality is fixed and immutable. That's no. also not true. Yeah. We need to actually be open to the ebb and flow of everything. And what I've learned in my life is like, we are so taught to fear the unknown. Like we project so much. I think here about how Claudia Rankine says black people are being murdered because white people cannot police their own imaginations. Jamal Lewis says trans women and trans women people are being murdered because cis people cannot police their own imaginations. Our relationship with the unknown is we always make the unknown pejorative, bad, mm-hmm. scary, ominous. And I think that what I really try to do in my, main, my life is fundamentally reframe that and to actually be the unknown is. <laughs> I'm returning to that sense of like, why must we graft everything with good, bad? Yes. And can we just experience and be committed to experience um, and then figure out in that way? And so I saw a deep shift in my life and in my desire when I really began to actually name how power was operating. And this is not to say, like, I I think that once again, like, people have these knee-jerk reactions where they respond and be like, well, um, I'm dating an insert triply (laughs) oppressed person, so I can't be a a racist or whatever, or... Are you saying that I'm complicit because I'm dating? I'm not trying to localize it in individual people. I'm not trying to localize it in individual identities. But what I am trying to say is that we live in a world that at fundamental level creates designations of who is worthy of living and who's not. Mm-hmm. And we have to do something about that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think what's important to also say is that it's not a one size fits all thing. Like there's no one imperative of what you should be doing to quote unquote decolonize your desire. There's no one strategy. There's no one way that that looks like or manifests. I'm open to how we're all doing it differently. Um, And I think that what I am trying to really do and practice in my life is like to be open that there are many pathways to freedom. Like we so often want to do this kind of like proselytizing thing of saying, this is how you get free or this is what liberation looks like when actually what we're saying is this is what freedom or liberation has looked like for me. And that might not be what it looks like for you. And that's okay. And so I think I'm really trying to also challenge myself to also be like, this has worked for me. Maybe it won't work for other people. This is what I believe. Maybe that's not what other people are believing. And that's fine. Like I don't, I don't, I don't think that it's it's that easy where there's like one solution. I think a lot about I mean at fundamental to this conversation is like how does how do systems of oppression that are such complex historic thousand plus year legacies and futures and presence how do those become materialized and embodied in us? That's like a huge thing and I think that it all happens in different ways because we've all had different experiences foundationally different lives and I think what I really want more than anything is the relief of just being able to be honest about that it's happening I think that's what I I feel like I need and was really helpful for me is just like 
can we be honest that it's happening? Mm -hmm. Um, That like, can we be honest that like everything, I'm not just saying desire here, but everything is informed by colonization and anti-black racism and ableism and transmisogyny. Can we just be honest about that? Um, Because I feel like so many times we just are constantly trying to once again, create this idea of like a pure self outside of power when we're actually so many ways constituted by power. Yeah. We, we don't know what the world looks like when everyone has access to freedom mm-hmm. and liberation. Cause it hasn't really existed. Um, right. at, at least not in a world that's as globalized and as, as technology focused as this world is, you know, maybe we've had small pockets of that in, in the past in really small local ways, but just really thinking about, you know, all of us getting free. Um, we really don't know what that's going to look like or how to get there. And, and how do we make space for multiple points in the journey and multiple experiences and, and just the multiplicity of what's going to be required for that. And I think what comes with that is discomfort. And so how do I start grappling with, as you said, like the unknown just is, Mm-hmm. What kind of work do like what kind of existential questions do I have to work through to be able to just allow the unknown to exist and uncertainty mm-hmm. to exist and to exist in discomfort and to still like show up and connect inside of that. But I think that's where I think art is like really necessary. I think we kind of spoke about this last time, but I'm not sure, but I say it all the time, which is like the idea that there's like a group of people who are artists and the rest of the world is not artists is like so wrong. We all are capable of artistry. And I believe that art is where we go to work through what society regards as impossible. Like I think about how growing up, I felt like who I am now and the gender I am and the way I look now is impossible. How did I make that happen? I had a creative life where I was able to imagine. And what creativity did for me is allow me to turn my imagination into reality, to manifest and materialize the dreamscapes I was creating through my art. Uh, Gloria Zaldua, an amazing Chicana feminist, writes, we have to create the, the images in our heads before we can manifest them in the world. And that's so foundational to me about what the role of art making and creation is about, is like, okay, we're stuck in this power grid right now of what what we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to feel, what we're supposed to do, what progress looks like, what equality looks like, what inclusion looks like. How can we dream an ambition to something else? And this is why I think it really hurts me to see how during times of political instability, oftentimes it's the artists that are the first people who are seen as impractical, or it's the artists who are seen as like, what are you doing? This is so superfluous or superficial. But I'm like, actually, this is vital work because what artists are doing is, is, is making us reckon an ambition beyond the now being able to reckon with what's beyond the now um that's like really hitting me for you how does the way that you kind of survive play out in your art for people who aren't familiar with the ways that you do art and the ways that you kind of grapple with surviving in the world what is that relationship for you I don't think I would be alive if I didn't make art Um, because I feel like I was able to manifest who I am through performance. 
the thing that I love about performance is it requires an audience. And it facilitates this dynamic of saying, this is what I am, or this is what I'm going through. There's a kind of like catharsis to that. Then having someone else be like, yeah, or like snap or clap or like say yes. Just having, having people bear witness to what you go through is so powerful and generative. And I want to gift that to everyone. Like, I think everyone deserves a spot on the open mic <laughs> just to like literally say, what are you feeling? Like, what's coming up for you? Like, how are you relating to what's happening in the news? Like, how are you relating to your breakup? Like, how are you relating to your mom's death? And just have a group of strangers literally be like, whoa, that's so real. And what I learned through performance is that the more particular people's stories are, the more universal resonance they have. So I could watch someone perform and talk and tell a story about their life and not know anything about them, but to love that person and to be like, I see myself in you. Um, and there's something really magic making about that for me um, and how I've been able to survive, which is I've developed a kind of what I call emotional alchemy. I take a lot of the vitriol and violence and harassment and misrecognition and demonization that I constantly experience. And I take all that negativity and I try to turn it into the is. I'm not even going to say turn it into something positive because sometimes it's it's too impossible to turn it into the positive because who's to say, okay, I get insulted. I do a good show. Everyone's like, you're amazing. But then I just get insulted again, you know, like it's a, a, a kind of like chronic form of pain. So what I try to do is actually find a way to bear witness to the violence. And a lot of what I'm trying to do in my performance is like experience my own violence and be like, that happened to me, or this is happening to me. And to have other people to say, like, I understand, or I empathize, or like, I know that this is going on. That's so helpful to me. Something that you recently wrote about just because of the memo that came out and all the other bullshit that's going on right now, politically, is you wrote that sometimes you have to remind yourself that you're part of a long legacy of trans mm -hmm. femmes who have been resisting since the beginning of time. And legacy is something that I've been starting to kind of ease my way into recently of just like, what is my legacy? And, and, and who can I draw strength from? Who can offer me support when I feel alone or lost? And who am I also fighting for and with? And I'd love to hear a little bit more about what kind of recognizing that legacy has been offering to you, especially lately? So much. So it's been offering me so much. I mean, these times have been extremely bleak. Uh, you know, like calls to the trans lifeline, the suicide hotline for trans and gender non people have quadrupled in the past few weeks after this memo. Because I think a lot of us are having to really confront the reality of being told that we're not real. And that's really painful because for decades we've had to literally continue to try to legitimize ourselves and we're still at a basic formulation of saying trans people exist. Like that's so simple. <laughs> or like intersex people exist. Like there's so many other things that we need to be talking about versus contesting our existence. Yeah. And so it's been feeling really bleak and like isolating and sad, especially like seeing how non-trans and non-intersex people can just sort of like move on from this moment as if it's like business as usual. And I'm like, what, wait, what? Like, this is so horrible. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm feeling like really bleak and despair, I really try to remind myself that across time, there have been people feeling this kind of isolation or this kind of pain. 
Um, and I think that really makes me feel like even if I can't find the people in my life right now to know that there are people before that who experience that makes me feel so grounded and part of something greater than myself. Mm-hmm. And to recognize that like so much of what I love about the trans tradition and obviously across time, not everyone was identifying as trans and there were so many different ways in which gender and sex were categorized and there's no linear stable archive. I get it. But what I'm trying to say is like, it literally used to be illegal for someone like me to walk down the street. You couldn't wear more than two articles of clothing different than what the gender or sex you were assigned at birth. And people got incarcerated because of it. And then they kept on going outside and like knowing that their insistence on going against that, created the conditions so that I can exist today mm-hmm. makes me feel like I need to keep going because even if I won't see the fruits of my labor and my resistance and my lifetime maybe someone else will mm-hmm. I also feel like it's important to clarify that legacy is not just about our own kids right yeah yeah and legacy is about I, I really I mean being an artist I think about this all the time like my people are like people who are experiencing a similar kind of emotion for me the sense of like existential dread Hmm. (laughs) like the sense of like lonely together the sense of like um connection with like we were meant for something so much greater than this like we've been scammed like does anyone else (laughs) want to talk about how this is all sham like what's going on like those are my kind of people and so when i think about legacy i think about those emotional dissidents Mm -hmm. i think about those people who were always call to be too much returning to our conversation on excess i think about the people who are always dismissed as superficial or excessive i think about people who are dismissed or criminalized as ugly i think about people who have watched watched other people get free while they're left behind in that pursuit of freedom i think about the left behind i think about how that legacy also opens up parameters of what community for me can be mm. like my community is not just other trans fans or other trans people, but is actually people who are really navigating a world that is kind of lying to us and not giving us our real worth. Oh, God, the world, yeah, a world that is lying to us. I feel like so many conversations I've been having lately are, are literally about those lies mm-hmm. and just the, the exhausting bullshit that comes out of those lies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is, I have one more question for you, and I, I just love to know, like, as you kind of orient towards how the world is right now, and <laughs> the inevitable existential crisis that comes up around that, what's kind of pulling you forward over the next couple of weeks and couple months? Like, what are, what are the things that are cracking you open, that are offering you something interesting, that are pulling you forward from this kind of space and place that we're in now Hmm. i've been reading a lot which has been really helpful for me um just like reading books (laughs) it's so great to like have a break from this world and enter another one Mm -hmm. um reading has really helped me and i've been performing a lot which has really been helping me as well and i've been developing and nurturing some new friendships which are really important to me Mm. and make me feel good and um i've been like creating more time to be still which is like extremely hard for me but also mobilizing me Mm -hmm. 
I'll be real. Like, in order to exist in this world, we have to do the work of, like, cordoning off or silencing some of our feeling. And that devastates me, but that's the case. Like, especially as a Cancer Leo rising, if I was to feel everything that I felt, like, (laughs) I could just not sustainably live in this world because I'm just, like, emotional all the time. So I have to do that work of bracketing, which I feel really sad about because that's what we were sort of talking about before with ideas of the norm and the excess. Like I'm like, I want to be able to scream the fullest scream. I want to be able to laugh the loudest laugh. I want to be able to cry every single tear. But sometimes you can't because of survival. And so I think that part of my strategy has also been just like keeping my head focused in front. Because I'm afraid that if I even was to look back a little bit, I could stumble and not be able to get up. Um, and I think that's just the reality of where so many of us are at right now. Like, it's really bleak. And I'm not interested in romanticizing, like, that things are getting better. Or if we love ourselves more, things will get materialized differently. I think that, like, there's so much pain in the world. And I think that actually for me being able at sort of a reoccurrent theme, but like being able to be honest about that pain allows me to keep going. So it's not about saying like the pain is gone or I'm moving towards happiness, but rather the pain is real and I'm finding a way to incorporate that pain into my day. Mm-hmm. And that's so much of what healing has looked like in my life is not actually removing the wound because the wound is there to stay, but actually finding the vocabulary to describe the wound because I was hurting, but I didn't know why. And now I actually have the wounds to be able to say, this is why. And that gives me a sense of peace. Mm. Yeah. Finding a way to make the wounds real and, and there and something that people can witness and see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I have to say, ta- every single time I talk to you, I feel like I have this out-of-body experience. <laughs> like, I kind of, like, leave my body a little bit because it you offer so much, so much richness richness, and, and so much truth that the enormity of it sometimes is, is hard for me to wrap my arms around, and I'm very appreciative of that. Um, and so I just want to close. I want to respect our time. Um, and I just want to thank you for being willing to be here with us and sharing your truth and helping me to field SC's question. And, um, I, I deeply, deeply appreciate it. And I know everyone tuning in is going to feel challenged and moved in the most beautiful ways. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. How can people stay in touch and find you online? Cause I know they're going to want to. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, I think I'm currently addicted to Instagram now, so that's where I'm posting a lot. So you could just follow me on Instagram. I'm at A-L-O-K-V-M-E-N-O-N. I will, of course, have a link to that in the show notes for everyone tuning in. And I'm going to have a link to the piece that Alok and Mia Mingus did for them. It's so good. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes if you want to read that and kind of grapple with ugliness a little bit. Um, Alok, thank you so much for being here with us and to everybody who tuned in. Thank you for listening. If you've got questions or stories or feedback that you want to send in and have witnessed or shared on the show, just head to sexgetsreal.com and you can send me a little note there. So thank you. Bye. Thanks so much. (laughs) You, you 
used to light up like a spark. Now you're blue, treading water in the dark. A huge thanks to the vocal few, the married duo behind the music featured in this week's intro and outro. Find them at vocalfew.com. Head to patreon.com slash sexgetsreal to support the show and get awesome weekly bonuses. As you look towards the next week, I wonder, what will you do differently that rewrites an old story, revitalizes a stuck relationship, or helps you to connect more deeply with your pleasure? So don't be ashamed.